If you have your Bibles, open it with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I think this is going to very much challenge you. I think it's going to encourage you. There was a country song that came out a handful of years ago about a guy that realized he was dying. And so he, uh, as a result of that, he got his priorities in order. He went skydiving. He rode a bull. <laughs> he loved people more deeply. And, and he said, I wish I could, I, I would like to, to wish upon you the blessing to live like you're dying. Well, he realized he was dying, so that's how he got his house in order. In First Peter chapter 4, Peter writes to us, the end of all things is at hand. We don't have much time. And so he gives us a priority sheet to make sure that our house is in order by making sure that our heart is in order. So let's read about that. First Peter chapter four. Let's begin with verse one. And we read, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live by the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. We got a little time left. How are we going to live out our days? Should Christ tarry or should we pass away and go to be with the Lord? How are we going to live out our days here as soldiers? I mentioned once before that uh, some of the youth called me Pastor Shane. This one youth kept getting her words mixed up and called me Passenger Shane. And I shared that with you. And since then, many of you call me Passenger Shane. I like it. It reminds me not to get too comfortable here, but to remember I'm a passenger. I'm passing through. You're a passenger. And so when y'all call me Passenger Shane, I just re- respond to you. You're a passenger too. We're passing through. How are we finishing out our times? For the flesh or for things of the spirit? Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. For, the t- for that time is past, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatries, things in the world. We've done that long enough. We've lived for the flesh long enough. Let's move on. Let's finish out our time here, living in the Spirit. Verse 4, with respect to this, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is what the gospel was preached. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that those who judged in the flesh the way people are, that they may live in the spirit the way God does. I would like to dive into that more deeply, but it's a wonderful, beautiful, mysterious verse. Let's go into verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of of, of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the words of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. If I were to take an arrow, and if I were to tie a string to this arrow that stretched for infinity, and with one side of that string I... I, I, I tied this arrow to the string and I took a bow and I shot it and it went through that wall and it went forever and ever and ever and ever and ever 
that way. And I took the other side of that string, tied it to another arrow, and I shot it that way, and it went forever and ever. And so a line stretched across us, right across this platform, and uh, this string stretched forever that way and forever that way. Let's say that string represents eternity. And then I took a pin. And right here in the middle of this stage, with that pin, I just made a small scratch. Just, a barely, just barely a speck on that, on that string. That scratch, that speck, would represent all of human history. From the creation of the cosmos to the summation of, of, of all things when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. That speck on that string represents all of history. And then, let's say that on that speck, on that string, I put another speck on the speck. And that speck on the speck represents your life, your time here. And don't we get so concerned, so focused, we have tunnel vision in relation to our speck lives. And we get so caught up on our spec jobs and our spec bills and our spec worries and spec concerns and spec ambitions. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says, lift up your eyes from beyond your spec life to the scope of eternity. And let's live for eternity. And he shares how to do that. In summary, he shares, if we are going to live for the things of eternity, because the end of all things is at hand, of course, Peter wrote that 2,000 years ago, from the time of Christ's first um, arrival on earth, his birth, to his second coming one day, that time span is called the end of ages, the end of time. And we are absolutely living in the latter days of the last days. And Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. So lift up your eyes from your speck, because Christ is coming soon. The Bible begins with these beautiful words in Revelation chapter 22. The Spirit stirs the bride, you and me, the church, to say, come Lord Jesus. And Jesus responds, I'm coming soon. And the Spirit stirs our hearts to say, come Lord Jesus. To lift up our eyes from the speck to the things of eternity, we have to develop a longing for Christ's return A desire to see him? Should he return first? Or as Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? Should Christ return? Well, then I will rejoice. Or should I go to be with him? Well, that's a blessing. That's a trade up. That's a step up. We have to develop a love for the Lord, a longing for the Lord to begin living for eternity. And Peter says, with this love for the Lord, with this longing from the Lord, there's going to be some characteristics of it in our life. The first of three things that we're going to draw out from this passage is that we will, with a deeper longing for the Lord, with a deeper love for the Lord, with a life that resolves to live for eternity rather than simply the speck, we will pray more fervently. We will love, he says, secondly, we will love more earnestly. And thirdly, he says that we will serve faithfully. Are you living for the speck or are you living for eternity? 
Well, Peter says the telltale sign of that, are you praying fervently? Are you loving earnestly? And are you serving faithfully with the gifts that God has given you? And so that's what we're talking about. So if you have your Bibles open, let's do dive into 1 Peter chapter 14. And this is Baptism Sunday, by the way, and I'm really excited about this because people are following Jesus in baptism today, and it displays that they are living and surrender to Jesus. They're following Christ. The Holy Spirit's uh, moved them to follow the Lord in baptism, and that's what they're doing, and God is going to bless their lives because of it. The first thing, we have to, in order to live for eternity rather than time, in order for the thing, to live for the things of heaven instead of this speck stuff that distracts us so much on earth, we have to first pray more fervently. A recent study was done of conservative Christians. Did you realize that the average time span that Christians, conservative Christians commit to praying a day is 45 seconds a day, and that's usually for their food? But if you, know, if you knew that Christ were returning within the hour, would you pray more fervently? If you knew that you were going to depart your body and go to be with Jesus in heaven within the hour, or even tomorrow, would you pray more fervently? The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes, wisdom is not in the house where they're having the Super Bowl parties, and, you know, when somebody makes a touchdown, the, 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 the bowl of popcorn and chips fly all over the living room, and people are drinking their beers and all of that kind of thing. The Bible says wisdom is not in the house of the party. Wisdom is in the house of the dying, because there are priorities in order. They, they realize that they don't have an endless list, an endless amount of tomorrows to, to waste and to squander. Time is short, so they're living for the things of heaven, they're living for the things of eternity, and they pray more fervently. When I'm at the bedside of somebody who realizes that their tomorrows are limited, that their tomorrows are few. The prayers are sincere, they're authentic, they're tender, they're fervent. And this is how we are to live every day throughout the day. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I believe that the reason that many conservative Christians only spend 45 seconds a day in prayer, a total of six hours uh, a year, is that... We are not living self-controlled and sober-minded, and our sin patterns have diluted our desire for the Lord. Our sin patterns have diluted our faith for fervent prayer. Fervent prayer will keep us from sin, and sin will keep us from prayer. It's It's a cycle. We have to pray in order not to fall into temptation, and we have to resist temptation in order to pray. And it begins with a desire and a decision to repent and have a prayer life. First of all, because our relationship with the Lord depends upon that prayer life. It's oxygen to our spirit. I can remember uh, early on when I first realized that the creator of all things listened to me. And he was very interested in what I had to say to him. And he responded with authority and with power. I would spend days fasting, seeking him camping, 
because I felt I could connect with him better when I was out in nature observing the handiwork of his artistic touch. And my heart would just increase with so much fulfillment and strength and joy and purpose. I have a weight as the pastor of this church, and it's very important to me to hear from God. In order to hear from God, I have to speak to God. I have to commune with God. I have to talk with God. I've spent many New Year's Eve, it's freezing outside, going camping, and 30 degrees, and I'm in my tent, shivering, trying to stay warm, thinking, I have to be out of my mind. But I'm praying, and I'm praying for vision, because to hear from God, I have to speak to God. And then listen, prayer's two-way dialogue. I can remember going to camp in Colorado with kids as a Young Life leader, and, and we would catch these sunrises in the mountains and moonrises in the mountains, and the stars would be so close, it felt like you could reach out and you could just touch them, and we would bask in that starlight, and we would pray, and we would worship, and our hearts would expand. Jesus says in Revelation, return to your first love. Have you ever loved me more than you love me now? Return to your first love, and dust off your prayer life, and engage Christ through prayer, commune with Him. We have to pray because our relationship with the Lord depends upon prayer. Prayer is simply talking to God. Sometimes somebody prays so passionately, so poetically, quoting Scripture right and left with so much authority, I don't want to pray after them. If we're ever in a prayer circle, I will let somebody else sit by that person because I don't want to follow that. God doesn't care about that stuff. What God cares about is sincerity. We can trip over our words We can have poor grammar. As long as our heart is humble, as long as our heart is sincere, as long as as we're talking to God and we're not sort of making up impromptu poetry for the benefit of those around us, as long as we're not sort of correcting somebody by acting like we're praying but we're really communicating a message to somebody else, I mean, as long as we're sincerely praying, we're just talking to God, God is so attentive. And His Spirit fills our heart with peace and with joy. We have to have a concentrated time every day where we pray, but not only that, we pray throughout the day. As Brother Lawrence said, we have to practice the presence of God. St. Augustine said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So we pray, we commune, we pour out our heart to God, and our heart finds its rest in God. And as our relationship with Christ decreases, the power that sin and temptation has on our life decreases because prayer will keep us from sin. But we have to repent because sin will keep us from prayer. Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Sin will keep us from prayer. Prayer will keep us from sin. Peter, who wrote this, knew Jesus said, pray with me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they fell asleep. He implored them, pray with me. They kept dozing off. And he said, couldn't you pray with me at least an hour? Can you pray an hour? Can you pray beyond 15 seconds? Can you pray beyond 45-second food prayers? Prayer will keep you from sin. And if you can't, is there sin in your life? Because sin will keep you from prayer. We must pray for the sake of our relationship with Christ. Jesus says, return to your first love. But not only that, we have to pray for strength and for power in our lives. 
A dad said, son, see that rock? Go pick it up. And the son goes, and he can't pick up the rock. And he comes back and says, it's too heavy. And the dad said, okay, well, let me rephrase this. Go pick up the rock. But in order to do so, listen closely, son. You're going to have to use all of your strength. So the son has this renewed resolve. He goes over. He tries to pick up the rock. It doesn't budge. He comes back, and he says, it's too heavy, dad. He says, son, you're, you're not listening to me. Go pick up the rock. But in order to do so, use all of your strength, son. So he goes back. He tries even harder. The rock doesn't budge. He comes back and he tells his dad, it's too heavy, dad. And the, son, the dad says, son, listen to me. Listen, listen. Go pick up the rock. But listen, use all of your strength. So the son goes back. He tries harder. The rock doesn't budge. So he comes back and he said, dad, I, I couldn't pick up the rock. It's too heavy. And the dad said, son, I said, use all of your strength. The son said, I used all of my strength, dad. And the dad said, no, you didn't, son. I'm your strength. You never asked me. I would have helped you pick up that rock. In the same way, God says, call to me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things. If we have faith and call out to Christ, Jesus said we can move mountains. He's not interested in the excavation business. He's talking about the mountains that block our path. We are to live life with all of our strength because we constantly live in a spirit of communion with God, asking for strength, asking for boldness, asking for authority, asking for favor, asking for mountains to move. And the moment we stop asking, we're telling God, I've got it. I don't need you. And we've entered into the realm of pride. There's no favor upon the prideful life. But when we walk in prayer, we walk in humility because we realize our need for God. The end of all things is near. If you were to go home, if you were to die tomorrow, what would your prayer life look today? That's what it's supposed to look like every day. If you knew Christ was returning tomorrow, what would your prayer life look today? That's how we're to live every day. Because our heart needs prayer. Because our relationship with Christ is dependent upon that prayer. Divine favor and strength on our life necessitate prayer. Because where there is no prayer, there is no power. Prayer is the window through which God's power pours into our life. We stop praying, the window closes, the power evaporates. So if we are to live like we're dying, we have to have a fervent prayer life. Secondly, Peter would go on to say, in order to live like you're dying, we must love earnestly. He goes on in verse 8. But above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is specifically in reference to one another in the body of Christ. We are to love one another earnestly. But in order to love one another earnestly, we have to move from beyond being poured into in environments like this to pouring into one another in community within the church. We have to take the transition from our relationship with God being in rows and listening to being in circles and communing. 
We have to move from being a spectator to being a participator in the body of Christ, and this is done through community. It's something that we've called home groups since our inception. I mentioned at Vision Night. I think we'll probably change these names up soon and, and, and call these home groups 242 groups because in Acts 242 we read, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is doing life together. I can tell when saints are in community because there's energy in their relationship with Christ. If somebody's in the hospital, I hear about it second or third hand because their community hears about it first. And they're ministering to them and they're meeting their needs. To be a faithful follower of Christ, we have to move from the rows to circles in living rooms. We have to move from taking that step to come sit in the pews to taking that step to knocking on a front porch and then entering into this community where we do life together. And you say, well, I'm just too busy for that. Well, then you're just too busy. Because Jesus died with this dream in mind, Father, that they may be one as you and I are one and I'm in them and you're in me, that they may be one. This is my heart cry. This was his passionate plea on the eve of his crucifixion that we would live life as one in community. Through an Acts 2.42 group. And this is how we love one another in the body of Christ. But we also have to show hospitality. That means that when we come out, it's with the idea that, that we're focused and we, we, we we're prayed up and we're spirit-filled. And we come out with a desire to encourage one another and love one another and, and invite one another to circle up in our community. And then to love one another outside the body of Christ. We have to share with them the words of life. We've got to share with them the gospel. If there were some children who were dying of thirst and you had cases and cases of bottled water and you didn't share, would that be loving? Of course not. There are people who are dying spiritually and we have the gospel of life and it is unloving to withhold that truth. It's not being tolerant to withhold truth. It's unloving to withhold truth. We have the words of life. We have to share with everyone everywhere because you don't live where you live or work where you work or surround, you're not surrounded by the people you're surrounded by in order to simply be tolerant and coexist, but it is to love them with words of life that will save their souls. I had some wonderful conversations this week. There was a couple in crisis mode, and it was Wednesday night, and I was exhausted. It was after we took youth home, and we were counseling with this couple, and I had the opportunity to draw the conversation from their crisis to their spiritual condition. We ministered and navigated the best we could in relation to the crisis, but then we drew the crisis back to this. If I were going through this crisis, I couldn't make it without Christ. I don't know. Is Christ in your life? Do you have a relationship with Christ? Are you a Christian? Are you saved? Are you born again? And they both humbly sort of looked down and shook their heads no. I said, I don't know how you do it. I really don't. You're stronger than me because I couldn't do it without Christ. I said, can I show you how to be a Christian? They both humbly said yes. We walked through scripture. They both received Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I was so exhausted going into that meeting But I just said, thank you, Lord Jesus. You are so good. Thank you. Later on in the week, I'm walking across the parking lot, and my friend Harold, we cross paths. And before you know it, we're on the front steps, and our conversation goes to some sincere things about life. And 
and we begin talking about uh, eternity. And so I said, so have you ever trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been born again? And that led into some authentic, some very deep conversation. And before you know it, Harold's receiving Christ as his Lord and Savior right there on the steps, and he's following Jesus in baptism this morning. I believe that there are opportunities like that all around us every day, but we have to embrace them, and we have to make a decision to love beyond weariness. We have to make a decision to love beyond busyness. And we've got to make a decision to love beyond even awkwardness. And look for opportunities to draw the conversation to spiritual matters and ask them, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Has there been a time that you've been born again? You're like, but how do I debate them? How do I talk them into it? How do I convince them? You don't have to. That's the Holy Spirit's job. You have to be faithful to just lead them to the place of response. Many people have said, no, I'm not interested. No, I don't believe it. No, or whatever. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But I don't have to convince people. Or if you do, the Holy Spirit gives you those words. But you, you just walk with them to that place and let God do his work. And then you pray with them to walk across the line of faith. And the Holy Spirit comes into their heart. And they're born again. They're saved. If Christ were coming within the hour, how would you live? Let's pray fervently. Let's love earnestly. And thirdly, let's serve faithfully. We continue in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. As everyone has received a gift, as each one has received a gift. Everybody say everyone. everyone. Hey, that was pretty good. I was expecting maybe about a fourth to say everyone. Everyone said everyone. That's awesome. And now, I'm only speaking for a moment to those who are already Christians. The Holy Spirit's in your heart. You have a spiritual gift. Everybody say everyone again. Good job again. Everyone, the Bible says, has a spiritual gift. So the question is, if everybody has a spiritual gift, why isn't everybody using their spiritual gift? Probably, statistically, on average, only about 20% of Christians nationwide are using their spiritual gift who are in the church. Everyone is to use their spiritual gift. You have a spiritual gift. 1 Peter chapter 4 talks about some of these gifts, serving and teaching and ministering. Romans chapter 12 has a long list of these spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is all about these spiritual gifts. Not in one place in Scripture is there an exhaustive list of all of the gifts. You put them all together, and you see that there's some incredible gifts like teaching, serving, helping, um, administration, healing, faith, intercession, um, leadership, pastoralship, evangelism. It goes on and on. There's probably even some gifts that aren't even mentioned And then, not only does everybody have a gift, everybody has a couple of gifts. Two or three gifts, probably. Sometimes, maybe even more. And each gift is like a paint. And the Holy Spirit is the painter. Our lives are the canvas. And there is no two... You, I mean, you are unique because perhaps you have the gift of teaching and perhaps you have the gift of administration. And those two colors blend together to make a masterpiece. And there's not a second one of you Perhaps you have the the gift of teaching, or perhaps you have the gift of leadership, or the gift of teaching, or the gift of prophecy. And all of our gifts blend together to make a color that is so unique. And the Bible says that we are the body of Christ. What happens if somebody in the body doesn't use their gift? Imagine that. Do you know anybody who's perhaps 
legs don't work. It's a challenge to live that way, isn't it? I have a, a good friend I've recently been reacquainted with. We go way back. He's a wonderful promoter. And he doesn't have any arms and he has one leg. And he has such an amazing positive attitude in life. It's a real challenge for him to get around. We're having a meeting and I'm just eating chips and salsa, not even thinking about it. And I thought, ah, gosh, my friend can't do that. He was at the Saturday night service in Burleson last night. And I sat down with, with he and a friend. I just started eating my cookie and punch right in front of him. I thought, he can't just do that. I mean, he can, but it's a little more challenging to navigate. It's the same way in the body of Christ. If you have a gift and you don't use the gift, the whole body is challenged. It's difficult for the body to navigate if one person doesn't use their gift. That's why the Bible says everyone has them and everyone should use them. This is a very life-changing verse for me. You guys know about my, my Young Life days and and then after Young Life, I was serving in a ministry and, and trying to crank through seminary and uh, working a couple of jobs. And I had, sometimes I was speaking nine times a week. And for whatever reason, I had to give nine different lessons. Like I, I kind, kind of couldn't use the same one. And, and there was just, it was too much. It was too taxing. Um, I got to where I couldn't speak right. And just because of the stress and the anxiety, my hands began to bleed because of the stress and the anxiety. I wasn't taking my day off, and this, I was moving in crisis mode like this for four or five years, and I thought, something's got to give. Something's got to give. So I went to Colorado and to pray and fast about what's going to give. I had all these church planning books. This is before the, young, the Hope Works days. I had all these church planning books that I was going to read, and, and the Holy Spirit said, no, 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 leave all of those to the side. Just dive into my words. So I took the Bible, I went up into the mountains, I read all of Psalm chapter 40 and communed with God, or not Psalm chapter, I read all the book of Job up in the mountains and just communed with God. And I came back down and I said, well, I still have some practical decisions that I have to make. Something's got to give. And I opened up 1 Peter chapter 4 and the first thing that I read was, the end of all things is at hand. I said, okay, all right. So I've got to line up my priorities. What are my priorities? What's important? And I kept reading. And then I came to this verse in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And I realized, okay, God, you've given me a gift. The end of all things at hand. So what matters is that I budget my time. You know, you have money, you have to budget. You can't just go buy everything. And in the same way, we only have a certain amount of time. We can't just go do everything. We have to budget. And we have to do the most important things. And I said, okay, Lord, so what do you want me to do? And then the very next thing, use your gift. And God was telling me, I don't care if seminary falls by the wayside. I don't care if your work falls by the wayside. What matters, your priority, is your spiritual gift. Use it. And... I said, well, how do I do it? Verse 11, the very next thing I read, whoever speaks, do it as one who speaks the words of God. I said, but Lord, I'm tapped. And then the very next thing I read was, whoever, whoever serves, let him do it with the strength that God supplies. And I had my answer. I didn't care what gave, but what was not going to give was the spiritual gift that God gave me. And I was going to use it with the strength that God provided for me in the work of the ministry.
In Luke chapter 9, I believe that there's nothing new under the sun. Those three excuses are the same three excuses that we have today to not use our spiritual gift in serving in the body of Christ. Somebody said, Lord, I'm going to follow you. But they were a little concerned about the accommodations. And Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The desire to be comfortable keeps many people from using their spiritual gift. But we've got to count the cost, and we have to follow. Somebody else said, Lord, I'll follow you, but first, let me go say goodbye to my family. Jesus said, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we let misplaced priorities and consumerism mentality taint our desire and urgency to use our spiritual gifts. What do I mean by consumerism mentality? It's very difficult. It's very difficult to avoid, but if we don't avoid it, it, it's very harmful to the local church, to the body of Christ. We can outsource all of our discipleship. We can outsource all of our ministries. For example, you know what? I want my kid to be part of that children's ministry. I want my kid to be part of that youth ministry at that church. I'm going to be part of that discipleship ministry, and I'm going to maybe pay my tithes to that church, and I'm going to maybe listen to this preacher, and we've outsourced all of our ministry. So we have a consumerism mentality when we approach the church in Fort Worth, Texas, so that we approach the church like it's a buffet. I'm going to have a little of that, little of that, little of that, little of that, little of that. And what happens is followers of Jesus Christ never have to roll up their sleeves. They never have to count the cost. They never have to lead, never have to teach, never have to serve because they've outsourced all of their ministries and all of their um, discipleship opportunities as they've embraced the local church uh, from a consumerism perspective. The third excuse that we have oftentimes in serving in the body of Christ, Jesus said to somebody, follow me, and he says, I'll I'll follow you, but first let me go say goodbye, or let me go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. I'm leaving now. In other words, it just wasn't convenient. It just didn't line up with his life situation. And so he had to surrender He had to surrender everything in order to roll up his sleeves. But I know this, when you surrender and you count the cost and you follow, God will give you so much more by way of fulfillment and strength and energy and joy. I believe this is why Peter bailed out of following Jesus. Because it was conflicting priorities. Peter was following Jesus to overthrow Rome. He didn't sign up for a cross. He had nothing to do with the cross. In fact, Peter rebuked Jesus every time Jesus talked about the cross. And so, on the eve of the crucifixion, Peter, who I see so much of myself in, he boasted that he will die with Jesus. And Jesus said, Peter... I mean, you're going to deny me. You're not going to die for me tonight. You're going to deny me tonight. Not once, but three times. And on the third time, it's going to be with bitter cursing. You're not going to die with me. Peter meant it. Because when the guards came to carry Peter away, Peter took a sword. He's a fisherman. He's not a soldier. But he took a sword and he swung. And he cut the palace guard's ear off. 
You realize what Peter was doing? He's going for his head. He's going for the middle of his skull. He's going for a neck. He's not a swordsman. He's not a marksman. He's a fisherman. He swung as hard as he could. He either wasn't a good shot or the guy ducked, and he took off his ear. Jesus healed him. But I believe that that shows us that Peter was sincere. He was going to follow. So why in just a moment's time was he cursing him when he was ready to die for him? Because... He cursed him because he saw Jesus being carried away in chains to a cross. He didn't sign up for a cross. He signed up for a kingdom. He signed up to overthrow Rome. He didn't sign up for a cross. Even though it was no surprise, Jesus talked about it the entire time. They had conflicting desires. They had conflicting wills. Has your desires, have your wills, have your plans ever conflicted with God's? And so you get mad and you say, this is where I'm bailing out. Because I planned one thing, I prayed another thing, I worked for this thing, and it didn't happen. So, you know what? I'm done. And like Peter, you just sort of drop your sword and you run. You have to come to a place of surrender. Of total surrender. Lord, You're more important than anything else in this world. And you've given me a gift. And I'm going to use this gift to serve you. You know, in John chapter 21, Jesus restores Peter after the resurrection. It's really a beautiful conversation. But um, this is when Jesus asks Peter around the campfire, Peter, do you love me? Agape, love me. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know a phileo, you, just a friendship love. In other words, Peter is broken, he's wounded, he was previously impetuous, but now he's not going to allow his mouth to speak words that his character can't cash. So impetuous Peter is now cautious, and Jesus says, do you agape, unconditionally love me? And Peter says, Lord, I phileo you. He's wounded, he's meek, he's broken. Jesus asks him again, do you agape me? And around the campfire, Peter, I think probably looks down. He can't keep Christ's eye contact. And he says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. And so Jesus meets him where he is. And he says, Peter, do you phileo me? And then I think Peter probably looks up and makes eye contact again. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. And in the very next sentence, Jesus then tells Peter the kind of death he's going to die. He said, when you were young, you did what you wanted to do. But when you grow older, you're going to be led where you don't want to go. And you'll be stretched out. And Peter was crucified for his Lord. And Jesus was telling Peter, not only do you phileo me. You don't know it, but I know what's in your heart. You agape me. That means that Jesus will take us and he'll restore us. And no matter where we've been, he'll use us. God wants to use you. Matthew 16, 18 says that Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you realize that for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been doing one thing? He's not been leading the celestial choir in heaven. They're singing quite nicely without him. He's not taking long naps and doing crossword puzzles in retirement. Jesus is doing one thing and he's building up his church through his Holy Spirit. And the single greatest honor in life It's when Jesus taps you on the shoulder and he says, I have a role for you to play in my church. 
And then we, like Peter, probably look down and say, but I don't know that I agape you. I've failed so many times. Do you phileo Jesus? Let's start there. And he will complete the work that he's begun within you because he's given you a spiritual gift. And all we have to do is step out of our comfort zone. Step out of the, uh, the, the consumerism mentality. Step out of the hurt that we may feel when we're angry with God because God's ways are inconsistent with our ways, but God's ways are always greater than our ways. And let's serve. Let's pray fervently. Let's love earnestly. And let's serve faithfully with the gift that God has given you. If you guys would come on up and if you would stand with me, please. If you're prepared for baptism, you can slip out now and get changed. And then we'll all meet you at the baptistry outside in a moment. Let me read you this particular poem about serving in ministry. And about being used mightily by the hand of God. I, I think I might read this maybe once a year, so maybe you've heard it a time or two. But it ministers to me every time I read it. I hope it ministers to you. In case you've looked away from Jesus, when he says, do you agape me? And you said, yes, Lord, I phileo you, and I don't think you can really use me. The master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf there were many. Which one would he choose? Take me, cried the gold one, I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value and I'll do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest. And for someone like you, master, gold would be best. Have you ever known somebody like that? (laughs) They're, They're the people you look at and you're like, man, God's got to use them. And God says, I can't use them. They're too sharp. They they, they, they have too much self-confidence. I can't use them. Because they think it's all about them. So the master passed on with no word at all. And he looked at a silver urn, narrow and tall. I'll serve you, dear master. I'll pour out your wine and I'll be on your table whenever you dine. My lines are so graceful, my carving so true. And my silver will certainly compliment you. Unheeding, the master passed on to the vessel of brass. Wide mouth and shallow and polished like glass. Here, here, cried the vessel. I know I will do. Place me on your table for all men to view. Look at me, called the goblet of crystal so clear. My transparency shows my content so clear. Though fragile am I, I will serve you with pride. And I'm happy I'll serve you and, and in your house to abide. The master came next to a vessel of wood, polished and carved that solidly stood. You may serve me, dear master, the wooden bowl said. But I'd rather use me for fruit, not for bread. Then the master looked down on the vessel of clay. Empty and broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had the vessel that the master might choose to cleanse and make whole and to fill and to use. Ah, this is the vessel I've been hoping to find. I will mend it and use it and make it all mine. I need not the vessel with pride of itself, nor the one who is narrow to sit on the shelf, nor the one whose big mouth and shallow and loud, nor the one who displays his contents so proud, not the one who thinks he can do things just right, but this plain earthly vessel filled with my power and might. Then gently he lifted the vessel of clay, mended and cleansed it to fill it that day, spoke to it kindly, there's work you must do. Just pour into others as I pour into you. So, you know, I, I'm so grateful to serve alongside you guys. I'm so grateful to be the church alongside you guys. And uh, 
you know, I, I mentioned, I mentioned the, the, the consumerism aspect of things. I was a Young Life leader. That's a parachurch ministry. And I have a great heart for parachurch min, ministries. And, and I think we ought, to, we, we ought to resource as many ministries as we can. And we have to help as many churches as we can. And we have to be a blessing to as many people as we can. We have to take every opportunity to grow that we can. But in the final analysis, God's given us a gift and he's called us to a place. And let's count the cost. Let's surrender all. And let's serve faithfully our master. So would you bow your heads with me, please? And if, um, man, if this resonated with you, if you say, you know what, I, I want to use my gift. I want to step out of the shadows, onto the playing field. I want to I step out of my comfort zone. And I want to, I want to pray fervently. I want to love earnestly the body of Christ and people outside the body with the gospel. And I want to serve faithfully with the, God, with the gift that God has given me. Would you raise your hand high? I would just like to pray. Okay, Father, you see these hands. Thank you for them. I, I love every one of them and their amazing hearts. Bless their lives, Lord Jesus. Thank you for their faithfulness. And Lord, I think that like Peter, um, perhaps we've stopped gazing at you because of a failure in our past. And we're timid to, to, to write a check with our words that our character can't cash because we failed you before, but you are the author and perfecter of our faith. And you know that you are bringing us to a place to love you with an agape love. And I pray that you would use every person here to love you with their whole heart and to follow you with full surrender. And there's an opportunity to, to find out how to share your faith, find out how to connect in a 242 group. There's an opportunity to find out how to serve in ministry, and that's through our membership series that we're having in, starting in this next month on Wednesday night. So please make opportunity to be at that. But, you know, Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. And so you've got to pray that. You've got to pray that with all of your heart. Here am I, Lord, sending me. And perhaps you're following Christ the best you know how already. And you are surrendered and you're taking every opportunity to love those in your life faithfully. Then just pray for continued strength. Perhaps you, you are a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. You can't continue that pace with self-confidence. You can't continue that pace with the love that you have. You have to afresh every day pray for divine strength to love, divine strength to serve, and to complete the work that Christ has given you. So, let's respond with worship. The altars are open. Kneel and just pray, Lord, here am I. Use me. Send me. And then we'll break. But I ask you not to leave quite yet. Um, Let's gather around the baptistry and, and celebrate some people who are following Jesus in baptism. So, but for now, let's respond. <laughs>